In our last study on Christian virtues, we looked at the virtue of patience or perseverance. Um, and we looked at that as we found it in 2 Peter 1, verses 5 to 7, which we can reread now. But also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. So this time we are going to be looking at the last three virtues in this list, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Now if you look at, a, um, at uh, Trench's, Richard Trench's synonyms of the New Testament, you'll notice that he gives a number of Greek synonyms for the word that Peter uses here. I think the two that we're most interested in are the synonym that is translated as devout in Luke chapter 2, verse 25, where it's applied to Simeon. There, uh, Luke says of Simeon, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And that word devout uh, has to do with being careful about the uh, things that pertain to God. Then there's another uh, word that is used particularly in James 1, verse uh, 25 and 26, or 26 and 27, rather, that's translated there, religion. If, if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. This word religion is a word that uh, designates particularly the practice of religion. It's the word that would be used, for example, in the faithful performance of the Old Testament ceremonies of the law. And notice here that James says that pure and undefiled religion is a practice, the practice of visiting orphans and widows in their trouble, and the practice of keeping oneself unspotted from the world. But the word that Peter uses here in 2 Peter 1 is a word which is well translated as godliness, or perhaps we could translate it as piety. It's a word that describes the whole conduct of our lives in the service of God. And it's found also in 2 Peter 1 verse 3, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. It's also a very important word in 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 2, we find the first use of it. Paul there exhorts Timothy and the saints to make prayers for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. 
and chapter 3, verse 16. This is the word you find at the beginning of that well-known passage uh, about God being manifest in the flesh. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. That is the doctrinal basis for godliness, God's manifestation in the flesh, justification in the spirit, and so on. In chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, there are some additional references to it. But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. And then there are four references in chapter 6. In verse 3, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud. And verse 5, he talks about useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself. Now godliness, verse 6, with contentment, is great gain. And finally in verse 11, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. So we might even say that godliness is one of the main ideas of First Timothy. First Timothy is teaching us how we ought to conduct ourselves in the house of God. And key to that, of course, is godliness. This is a virtue that, in a sense, embraces many virtues. We might say that it is the practice of any virtue for God's sake and for his glory. It's the practice of virtue for God's sake. And we can see some examples of this in the scriptures. First of all, let's look at a negative example in 2 Timothy 3, verse 5, where Paul is describing men who come in the last days. He says of these men, let's begin in verse 2, men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Notice the long list of vices there. Having a form of godliness, they have a form of godliness, but denying its power, and from such people turn away. So these are a negative example. These are people who have a form of godliness, but do not have true godliness. And it's uh, possible that Paul has in mind here uh, Jewish people, like the Pharisees, of course, who had a form of godliness, and yet who did not have true godliness whose lives were indeed lives of pride and of disobedience to God.
We find another example, a couple more examples actually, in Acts chapter 10, verses 2 and 7. And this is uh, Cornelius. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man or a godly man, and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. And notice how there that word is given some substance by uh, the fact that he gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. And then again in verse 7, when the angels who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout or godly soldier from among those who waited on him continually. And then the word is used again in Acts 22, verse 12. In this context, Paul is describing his conversion. And he talks about uh, the man who came to him to bring to him the word of God and to um, remove his blindness. Then a certain Ananias, a devout or godly man, according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me. And he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. So these are examples uh, where that word is used. But you can think of other examples also from the scriptures. Uh, Job is probably a very good example of this godliness. We read of him not only that he was a blameless man and upright, but that he was one who practiced uh, the uh, the ceremonies of the law for his children, who offered sacrifices for his children just in case they had committed any sins. You find this godliness, I think, in Joseph, who refused to commit fornication with or adultery with Potiphar's wife and who showed great humility and patience in the prison after Potiphar imprisoned him. You see it in Abraham, I think, in the fact especially that wherever he went, Abraham first built an altar to the Lord and worshipped the Lord in that place then. And you see this too in David's life, perhaps especially in the early part of his life when he was being pursued by Saul and refused to touch the Lord's anointed even when he had opportunity and who expressed many times his dependence on the Lord in the Psalms that belong to this period. You see it also in his uh, passion for building the temple and for preparing for the building of the temple once God had told him that he might not be the one to do so. So you have many examples of this godliness throughout the scriptures. There would be many others whom we could mention as well. But that's all we're going to say about godliness today because this is in a sense not a separate virtue again. It's a, a virtue, if you want to call it that, that embraces many virtues. We move on then to the term brotherly kindness or Philadelphia. That's the uh, Greek word behind this uh, word in Second Peter 1. 
And I want to uh, look at some of the New Testament uses of this word because I think they are enlightening about the meaning of the word. You find it in Romans 12, verse 10. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. But you see there in verse 10 that phrase brotherly love again. And here it is combined with another phrase, be kindly affectionate to one another. And this uh, word is a word which has to do with the cherishing of one's kindred, of one's relatives. So you have both the idea of brotherly love and the idea of the cherishing of kindred. But here, of course, in this context, it's the cherishing of the uh, uh, spiritual kindred in Christ. And the Apostle Paul uh, adds to this that we should, in this uh, brotherly love, give honor to one another prefer and prefer one another. That is, prefer others to ourselves. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9, the Apostle commends the Thessalonians for being exemplary in this brotherly love. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1, again we have it, let brotherly love continue. But I think some of the uh, manifestations of this brotherly love then appear in the following verses. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. And even perhaps marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, uses again both of the words, the Greek words, for love. You find this uh, in verse 22, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, that is, in sincere Philadelphia, love, and that's the word agapao or agape, it's noun form, love one another fervently with a pure heart. So Paul, Peter takes both of the Greek words, the important Greek words about love here, and he combines them. Sincere love of the brethren, that is, sincere brotherly love, and then he says, out of that sincere brotherly love, love one another fervently with a pure heart. And I think the point that he's making here is uh, the basic difference between Philadelphia and agape is that the one is a warm affection 
and the other is uh, that warm affection then shown in deeds of love. Let us not love in word, but in deed and in truth, 1 John says. And then you have it again in 1 Peter 3, verse 8. And here again, it's associated with a number of other things. So it's worth looking at this passage also. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. There's our word. Be tender-hearted. Be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. So this brotherly love manifests itself in compassion, in tenderheartedness, in courtesy, in not returning evil for evil, and even if you look at the following verses, in restraining the tongue and in seeking peace. Now we can say, I think, two things about this idea of brotherly love here in 2 Peter 1. First of all, note it is brotherly kindness or brotherly love. Peter is talking about love between brothers in Christ. He's not talking about other relationships. He's not talking about those friendships which sometimes exist between believer and unbeliever. He's not talking about the natural affections, the affection a mother has for her child, or the affection that a child has for his parents, or the affection that a husband has for his wife, those natural affections. He's not talking about those kinds of things here. This is a word, Philadelphia, which is restricted in its use to brothers and sisters in Christ. It is brotherly kindness or affection. And it's a word then, in the second place, that has to do with uh, warmth of affection. That's the second thing that we want to say about it. It's a it's a word that's very appropriate, I think, to the relations of brothers. Paul seeks, and we as Christians should be seeking, of course, more than mere tolerance between brethren, more than a, a kind of armed truce or an external peace, but in those relationships which exist between brothers and sisters in Christ, there should be this warmth of affection. And that's what Peter is talking about, I think, especially here, this warmth of affection. You see it expressed by David in Psalm 16 when he says of the saints, they are the excellent in the earth in whom is all my delight. And you see it again in Psalm 122, verses 1 and 2, where uh, the psalmist says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. There's that delight in the company of God's people. And this warmth of affection between brothers arises, of course, because of our union in Christ. We see in others the same character that Christ has created in us, that character of holiness, that character of godliness, that character of love for God and for the neighbor. We see in our brothers and sisters that we have much more in common with them 
than with unbelievers, and we even have much more in common with them than with unbelieving relatives, unbelieving even brothers and sisters or unbelieving parents. And so there is this warmth of affection that exists. And this warmth of affection for the saints of God should, of course, do away with parties in the church. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 when he uh, exhorts the Corinthians to be of one mind and not to be saying, I'm a Paul, I'm of a Peter, I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos, and so on. There should not be cliques within the church. There should not be a kind of tribalism that is that families within the church tend to stick together and ignore the rest of the saints of God and and show a decided preference for uh, themselves and uh, kind of pass over or uh, ignore the fellowship of the rest of the saints. This is a, a, a an affection then which can uh, displace natural affections if necessary, but it's an affection which should at least exceed these natural affections. Even this affection, though, this affection for brothers, must be governed by the law of God. That is, this brotherly love must not exceed love for God. If it exceeds our love for God, it becomes idolatrous. The desires that belong to this affection must be righteous desires, that is, desires that are regulated by the law. They must not be those kinds of idolatrous affections that parents sometimes have for their children. There must not be a kind of exclusiveness about this affection that shows decided preference for one above another within the company of saints and leads to favoritism. These affections must be in their proper proportions that is, they must exist uh, in the church, but they must be proportionate to the love which we have for God and other loves which uh, God commands us to have. You can see some of this in certain passages of the New Testament. Again, let's look at Matthew 10, verse 37. Matthew 10, verse 37 he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's Jesus talking. John chapter 12, verse 25. John 12, verse 25. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So there he says, uh, we must not love life more than we love uh, God himself. John 20, verse 2. We see uh, this here uh, in Mary Magdalene. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. This is John, I think, 
It's generally agreed that the disciple whom Jesus loved is the phrase that John uses to describe himself. And John expressing his astonishment at the love which Christ has given to him. He sees himself as unworthy of that love, and he's amazed by that love of God for him. And then in Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, as well, As many as I love, Christ says to the Laodiceans, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. So this is a love which practices proper conduct. It's a love then which uh, when we uh, have this love for older men within the church is mingled with respect for their age. It's a love which when we show it to the elders and the authorities in the church is accompanied by a willingness to obey. It's a love which when we uh, show it towards a, an equal, another brother or sister in Christ, uh, is a will, it shows its affection in a willingness to help, to admonish, to support, to encourage, and so on. It's a love which, when exercised towards those who are beneath us, in, uh, who are supposed to be subject to us, like children or wives, or when we're elders or deacons, members of the church, shows itself in a uh, firmness, but also in kindness. There are different ways, then, in which this brotherly affection, this brotherly love, manifests it manifests itself in different relationships within the church. With that in mind, then, we turn to the word love, the final word in Peter's list here, the highest of the Christian virtues. Now, Paul says, abide faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Love is the greatest of the Christian virtues. It's The Greek word here is the well-known word agape, and it is the word that is most frequently used in the New Testament for uh, the concept of love. There are, again, two things I think we can say about the word in this context. First of all, that word extends beyond the brother to all our neighbors, and even to our enemies. So when Peter talks about brotherly kindness or brotherly love in the word Philadelphia, he's talking about relationships between the saints. But when he uses the word love at the end of this um, series of virtues, then he's not talking just about loving the brothers. He's talking about loving all our neighbors. He's talking about loving our enemies. This is a love then that is broader in scope. We are to love our brothers and sisters in this way, but we are also to love others beyond them. The second thing I think about this uh, word agape is that it's different from Philadelphia or philos would be the uh, other Greek word for love in that it's more an act of the will and a doing. 
This is what John means when he says, let us not love in word, but in deed and in truth. It's more than sympathy and affection. It may, in fact, go contrary to our affections and our inclinations. If we are called to love our enemies, there may be no bond of affection between ourselves and our enemies. There is, in fact, no bond of, of affection. It may go contrary to our inclinations, to our desires. We may want to hate our enemy. We may dislike him uh, exceedingly. We even sometimes dislike uh, fellow saints. But this love is, is not, does not emphasize particularly that, that affection or that inclination. It is rather the, the willing of another's good. When Jesus commands us to love our enemies, he commands us to pray for them and to do good to them and so on. This is uh, not, he doesn't say anything about being affectionate towards them. He wants us to do good to them. And this is what is contained in that word agape. It's the helping, the comforting, the strengthening, the admonishing, the seeking the welfare of another. It is a love, therefore, which is self-sacrificing. And it's a love which our Lord Jesus Christ showed, of course, to his disciples in the washing of their feet and in his giving himself for us on the cross. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So the uh, word philos emphasizes particularly, I think, the idea of affection, while the word agape emphasizes the act of the will, which may go contrary to the affections, and which then wills and does good for others. Now, Jesus himself makes a distinction in these two words in the Gospel according to John, chapter uh, 21, when he is dealing with Peter after his resurrection. Now, there are different ways of interpreting this. I've heard, for example, that when Jesus says to Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He uses the word agape, that's correct. Do you love me more than these? Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he uses the word philos, not the word agape. And I've heard it said about that. Well, Peter found Christ's word agape inadequate. He wanted to use a stronger word. He wanted to use that word philos. The, the word is seen then as a stronger word here. And then again, Jesus asked Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? This time leaving off the more than these. And that word is agape. And Simon answers and says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he uses the word philos again. And again, it's been said, Peter finds the word agape insufficient. He wants to use a stronger word to express the strength of his love for the Lord. And then the third time, Jesus says 
Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he uses the word philos this time. And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And he uses the word philos again. So Peter is expressing the passion of his love, the warmth of his affection for Jesus here. And he's not satisfied with using what is in this context a weaker word. That's the interpretation that some give to this. I think that actually turns the passage on its head. I think that exactly the opposite is, uh, is happening here. When Jesus says to Simon, uh, do you love me more than these? He's, of course, referring to that um, boast of Peter just prior to his death when Jesus had said to the disciples, you are all going to forsake me. And Peter had said, though everyone forsake you, I will never forsake you. And Peter was obviously referring not just to people in general, but even to the rest of the apostles. He was setting himself above the rest of the apostles, and he's saying, they may do it, but I would never do it. I would never forsake you. And then, of course, while Jesus was on trial, he had denied Jesus three times and had done so with cursing. I do not know the man. He had sinned greatly. He had shown their hatred for his Lord rather than love. And so when Jesus says to Peter, do you love me more than these? He's saying to Peter, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? And do you love me with that love which is obedient and faithful, which will do my will? And Peter responds with the word philos. And I think in this context, that's not always true, but in this context, that word is weaker than the word agape. Peter does not dare to use that word agape because of what he has done to Christ. He says to Christ, yes, you know that I am warmly affectionate towards you instead of, you know that I love you. And so Jesus makes the question even harder. He doesn't ask Peter, now do you love me more than these love me? But he asks Peter, do you love me, period? And he uses the word agape. And Peter, again, is unable to use that, what is in this context, stronger word. He says, instead, you know that I am warmly affectionate towards you. And then Jesus makes it even harder for Peter, and he asks him finally, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? That is, do you really have even this warmth of affection for me? And you see what Jesus is doing here is very severe with Peter, but it's also very merciful because what he's doing by these, these piercing questions is he's tearing away the carnality of Peter's love for him. And he's bringing Peter down to that rock-solid and unshakable core of his love 
for Jesus. Because even now, Peter doesn't deny. He doesn't say to the Lord, well, I, I guess that I, I can't even claim to be warmly affectionate towards you. In spite of those terrible questions of his Lord, he says still, Lord, you know all things. And he's very distressed, but he does nevertheless insist that he loves Christ. You know that I love you. That's, I think, the difference between these words, this love which, is, which does the will of God, this love which is self-sacrificing, this love which puts God first in everything. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul, and which puts the neighbor in second place to God and self last. That's the love which Peter is talking about here at the end of this series of Christian virtues. Now let's look again at some examples of this love in the scriptures. We have to begin, of course, with God's love for us. And we've already referred to that very uh, well-known passage in 1 John, but very important passage as well. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God loved us in this self-sacrificing way. And this is the love which Jesus has for us as well. This love by which he laid down his life for us and took it up again so that we might live with him forever. But it's very interesting that the scriptures also, in a few places, use of God's love for us that word philos. It's, a, it's not that common, but it is found. And we should look at those passages. One of them is in John chapter 5, verse 20. John 5, verse 20. This is actually uh, God's love for his son. For the father loves the son, and that's the word philos, not agape. The father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. The father has this warmth of affection for his son, and the son has this warmth of affection for his father. But if you turn now to John 16, verse 27, we see that used of God's, that word used of God's love for his people. John 16, verse 27. And John, remember, is the apostle of love who talks at great length, in, especially in 1 John, but even in the gospel of agape. But he does know how to use this word philos. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. The Father has a warmth of affection for you. He delights in you. You see that, that warmth of affection that the Lord has for us in the prophecy of Zephaniah chapter 3. Toward the end of that chapter, when the prophet says, the Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one will save. 
He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love, or he will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. That's the, the affection that our Father has for us. It's not just that self-sacrificing love that does good things for us, but it is also a delight in us, a warmth of affection for us that far exceeds any affection that we can have for him or for others. You see this warmth of affection, Jesus practicing this warmth of affection, even in that um, interchange with Peter in John 21. He's very severe, but it is out of his love for Peter, his affection for Peter, and his desire to do good for Peter. Both kinds of love are there that he does it. He is restoring Peter to his apostleship in the presence of the rest of the apostles. And he is uh, mercifully uh, sanctifying Peter's love for himself. You see this agape love of uh, the brothers in many other examples in the scriptures, uh, that is agape love of neighbors as well as brothers in many other examples. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13 verses 1 and 2 refer to Abraham showing hospitality to the strangers who were passing his door, not knowing that he was um, entertaining angels. In Acts chapter 9, you also see an example of this agape love. This is about Dorcas. Acts chapter 9, verses 36 to 39. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But then, of course, she died, and they summoned Peter to deal with the situation, and he ultimately raised her from the dead. But in verse 39, we read, When he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by him, weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. James 1, verse 27 is another example. We've looked at this earlier when James talks about visiting the orphans and the widows in their affliction. Job showed this love. He talks about it in two passages in the book of Job. Job 29, verses 11 to 17, When the ear heard, that is, when the ear of my neighbors heard, then it blessed me, and when the eye saw, then it approved me, because I delivered the poor who cried out, the fatherless and the one who had no helper. The blessing of a perishing man came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind, and I was feet to the lame. I was a father to the poor, and I searched out the cause that I did not know. I broke the fangs of the wicked and plucked the victim from his teeth. And again in chapter 31, verses 16 and following, he talks about his love for the poor. If I have kept the poor from their desire or caused the eyes of the widow to fail or eaten my morsel by myself so that the fatherless could not eat of it, but from my youth I reared him as a father and from my mother's womb I guided the widow, 
If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or any poor man without covering, if his heart has not blessed me, and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless when I saw I had help in the gate, then let my arm fall from my shoulder, let my arm be torn from the socket. You see a a very striking example of this love uh, for a neighbor and even for an enemy in the book of Daniel, chapter 4, verse 19. Nebuchadnezzar has just had that dream about being uh, driven out from among men and becoming like a beast for a time. And he has told his dream to Daniel, and Daniel has understood the dream. But look at what you read when Daniel understands it. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. Daniel shows their love for Nebuchadnezzar. And you see this love in other ways as well throughout the scriptures. We could cite many more examples again. But again, let's note that this love, this agape, must be properly regulated by the law of God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul, Jesus says, but love your neighbor as yourself. You may not love your neighbor with all your heart and mind and soul. That kind of love is reserved for God only. Your neighbor comes second to God, and you come third. Love your neighbor as yourself. So those are the the virtues that Peter describes for us in 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to go on next time to some other scriptural passages, and we're going to be looking especially at diligence versus laziness next time. May God bless you with his word.